Chapter 4 of The Cruise of the Falcon by E. F. Knight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 Bahia. Our first long run was now before us. Bahia dos Todos os Santos in Brazil, across the broad Atlantic, was to be our next port. The time this voyage might occupy was rather uncertain for we were now towards the southern limit to the northeast trade winds. We had to traverse the region of the southwest African monsoon, which blew in our teeth, and that broad belt of equatorial calm so terrible to sailors, the sultry doldrums, where a ship may lie for weeks on the hot, smooth water under a cloudless sky, with a pitch oozing from her decks, a region of unbearable calm, broken occasionally by violent squalls, torrential rain, and fearful lightning and thunder. All these difficulties conquered, we should be in the pleasant realm of the strong southeast trade wind, the trade wind of the southern hemisphere which blows fresher and steadier than the northeast trade, and under whose favoring breath we should be able to reel off the knots right merrily. We steered so as to cross the equator in longitude 24 degrees west, which Jourdain considered to be the best route at this time of the year. As this voyage will be of some interest to yachting men, I shall, contrary to my usual custom, narrate it in the form of a diary. It will be observed that we were 13 days reaching the equator, that, for the greater part of that time, we encountered calms and southwesterly monsoons, so that sailing as we generally did, close-hauled on the starboard tack, we were driven considerably to the eastward of our course, on the tenth day being as far east as 21 degrees 30 minutes west. Not till we were on the equator did we fall in with the southeast trades, which then stood by us pretty steadily till we reached Bahia. Throughout the voyage, the thermometer ranged between 85 degrees to 90 degrees in the shade, in the following diary, I divide time in the civil fashion for convenience, but the positions and distances are extracted from the log and given at midday nautical fashion. October 1st. Weighed anchor at midday. Light northeast wind. Ran down the San Antonio Channel under all canvas. On our left were the bare volcanic masses, the forbidding gorges of San Vicente a thundering line of breakers dashing against the shore everywhere. On our right, the more smiling mountains of the Isle of San Antonio. The lofty summits of both islands were hidden in clouds. At night, wind dropped, calm and vivid lightnings. October 2nd. Dead calm, nasty drizzle, hot, debilitating weather. Vessel rolling uncomfortably in the swell. Through the haze perceived the lofty mountains of Brava, the southernmost and most beautiful of the Cape Verde archipelago. Toward the evening, an east-southeast wind sprung up, which enabled us to average six and a half knots an hour during the night. October 3rd. Glorious sunny weather. Wind, east-southeast. 11 a.m., one of the crew was caught in a serious breach of discipline. Man at the helm, too, at the time. He was sitting down to his work, was wearing blue spectacles, and worst of all was reading a play of Sophocles in the original. Fancy a man at the wheel reading Sophocles. He was seriously rebuked by the officer of his watch, Jerdain, who was a martinet in his way, and who gazed at him for fully five minutes, 
speechless with dismay, ere he could find voice for vituperation. October 4th. Wind east-southeast. At midday and longitude 25 degrees 1 minute west, latitude 10 degrees 32 minutes north. Distance made this day 152 miles. During the day the wind came round till it was quite aft. The glass fell rather suddenly, more than a tenth in a few hours. In the evening there was a wild appearance in the sky, slight squalls of wind and rain, and signs of worse weather coming. Then followed a magnificent sunset, ominous of a storm, and a calm for a while. So threatening was the appearance of the heavens to windward that all hands stayed on deck to see what was coming. Right aft, we perceived an inky mass of cloud rising from the horizon. It had huge, rugged, black streaks diverging from it in all directions, like the claws or arms of some great monster crab or polypus. Bigger and bigger, the threatening mass swelled, and the evil-looking arm stretched half round the horizon and to the zenith, as if the monster was about to enclose the whole world in its grasp. A wonderful and awful appearance. Our sails flapped as we rolled in the calm. We lowered the mainsail, made all snug, and waited. First, constant and vivid sheet and forked lightning of a blue color came out of the cloud, and then down burst the squall upon us, and such a squall! The cloud had enveloped all the sky, had blotted out all the stars. Never have I experienced so complete a darkness on the seas. The wind blew with great fury and we could not turn our faces to the stinging rain so smartly it struck. We scudded on before the heavy gusts. As I steered, I had to keep the vessel right before them, judging the direction by the feel of the wind on my neck, for the binnacle light was blown out. The roar of wind and rain rendered even our loudest shouts inaudible to each other across the decks. It was, as I said, pitch dark. As I steered, I could only see two whirling masses of foam on either side of our bow, like two great wings thrown up by our speed. Our side lights were lit. On the foaming mass on our port side fell the red. On that of our starboard side fell the green light, lending a spectral horror to the scene. With this exception, the occasional lightnings alone threw a fitful light on the noisy darkness around. Above the roar of the wind and water, but one sound was heard. Our bell pealed forth loudly with each exceptional pitch of the vessel, a deep funereal tone that added to the solemnity. This squall lasted nearly an hour. Others succeeded it throughout the night from various quarters, but none coming nearly up to it in fury. October 5th. Cloudy, warm, no wind. We were in that most uncomfortable position for a vessel, becalmed in a heavy sea for last night's weather had raised a confused tumult of choppy waves in the trough of which we rolled and pitched horribly with all sails stowed. It was a lazy day for all, our chief employment being eating bananas and vainly attempting to catch a large shark who was prowling round us, a wary old ruffian who refused the most tempting bait. The calm continued throughout the day. As usual, ill temper resulted. Two of the crew entered into a fierce discussion as to whether the plantains, which were to serve as one of the courses for dinner, should be cooked and eaten with salt like potatoes, or be treated with sugar like fruit. 
At 8 p.m. there were signs of squally weather in the sky, so the crew waxed hopeful and good-tempered again. During the night, we had occasional showers and light squalls from south to south-southwest, at which we put the vessel close-hauled on the starboard tack. Then came the calm again. We were now having an experience of that tantalizing, wearisome region where the doldrums and southwest African monsoons fight for mastery over the equatorial sea. All this time, we were being drifted a considerable distance daily out of our course to the eastward, for we were now in the Guinea Current, an equatorial stream of hot water, its temperature is about 84 degrees, setting into the gulfs of Benin and Biafra. So warm is the water that the morning douse with the bucket, which took the place of the tub, was no longer refreshing as it used to be, for the temperature of the sea was of course higher than that of the night and morning air. When a sea came on board in the night, it felt like hot water to our faces and bare feet. October 6th. Again a dead calm. 88 degrees in the shade, a high sea running, a fearful rolling, creaking, and groaning of ship. All our canvas was stowed, a bark in sight in the same situation. For 40 hours we did not lose sight of her, though we were bound in different directions. Latitude 9 degrees, 14 minutes north, longitude 24 degrees, 30 minutes west. As no sharks seemed to be near, I jumped overboard for a short mid-ocean swim. At midday, there came on us a slight squall with rain. We hoisted the canvas, but in half an hour it was as calm as ever. October 7th. A light northerly air and a very heavy equatorial rain. We stripped and enjoyed a freshwater shower bath. Also, blocked up the scuppers and collected enough water to refill some of our empty breakers. We only made 17 miles this day, so light was the wind. October 8th. Calms and light northerly airs. There was a haze to the southeast, as if portending our entrance into the region of the trades. This day, we made 72 miles on our course. October 9th. Tacking very slowly against head-variable winds, divided from each other by hours of dead calm. In the afternoon, we came to a disturbed sea, where it had evidently been recently blowing. 87 degrees in the shade. Spoke an English bark homeward bound. At night, passed very close to another vessel. Neither of us were carrying side lights, and the night was dark, but we showed them our bullseye, to which signal they responded by showing another. A night of calm with occasional squalls from every point of the compass. October 10th. A strong and squally southwest monsoon sprang up. We sailed close-hauled on the starboard tack. The vessel was very lively, but not wet. At noon, the wind freshened to a half-gale from the southwest with heavy squalls at intervals. We sailed under close-reefed mainsail, foresail, and storm jib. In the night, it was blowing a moderate gale of wind in our teeth. The falcon was livelier than ever. The way she jumped, first her head and then her stern, into a sea was a thing to experience. At midnight, the vessel was laboring so heavily that we hove her to, for it was a shame to tax too much the endurance of the brave old boat. October 11th. At dawn, the great seas looked most imposing, with a fiery sunrise lending a weird color to them as they charged on toward us. At 8 a.m., as the wind was moderating, we proceeded on our voyage. 
we put the vessel on the port tack for the wind was south by west and we had been driven considerably to the eastward of our course at midday our position was latitude four degrees fifty eight minutes north longitude twenty one degrees forty nine minutes west all hands were now well weary of this southwest monsoon blowing in our teeth with its heavy confused seas and squalls october twelfth fine sunny but disagreeable day for the wind though still as a rule from the southwest quarter seems to come at times from everywhere and anywhere hence a troublesome sea there was a curious hazy appearance today to the southeast which cheered us somewhat as indicative of change we had now reached a locality between the southwest monsoon and the southeast trade where the winds contend continually for the mastery they certainly have ploughed up their battlefield with their rival artillery into short choppy furrows very nasty for small vessels like ours that have to cross them at midday we were in latitude three degrees fifty six minutes north longitude twenty two degrees fifty minutes west october thirteenth a marvelous sunrise on the eastern horizon lay a bar of bright gold with a mass of fiery red above like a coast of golden sand lit by an intense light and backed by mountains of half molten iron the wind blew fresh today from south by west to south by east at noon our position was latitude one degree forty seven minutes north longitude twenty three degrees eight minutes west distance made in twenty four hours one hundred forty six miles during the night of a sudden with a squall the trade wind burst down on us at last then settled down strong and steady so we rejoiced exceedingly october fourteenth a glorious morning no cloud in the sky and a fresh trade wind at seven a m we crossed the line at midday we had reeled off a hundred and sixty miles on our course and at lunch were glad over our last two bottles of calaris wine from madeira which we had reserved for our arrival at the equator our luck had changed as we entered the southern hemisphere after thirteen days of calms squalls and headwinds jerdine reported a most curious phenomenon in his morning watch the sea about a mile from us became suddenly disturbed boiling up violently as from a subterranean spring this lasted for about two minutes he said he thought it would have been dangerous had we happened to be over the spot throughout the day we observed great patches of discolored water having exactly the appearance of shoal water these and similar phenomena are frequently observed in this part of the ocean often a ship reports that hereabouts she has experienced a violent shock similar to that which is felt when a rock is struck sometimes a great rumbling is heard like that of a heavy chain running through the hawse pipes and the vessel quivers like a leaf in the wind another time in smooth water a vessel has been known to heel right over suddenly as if she had run on a sandbank for this is a region full of most uncanny apparitions for the mariner a sort of haunted corner of the sea before this ocean had been as thoroughly sounded and surveyed as it is now these phenomena were attributed to the presence of unmarked sandbanks and rocky shoals and are thus put down as vigias in the old charts but it must have astonished the mariner somewhat to find that he got no soundings with his deep-sea lead immediately after experiencing one of these shocks 
It is now known that there is no less depth than 2,000 fathoms anywhere in this neighborhood, and submarine earthquakes are acknowledged as the true cause of these convulsions. So frequent are these manifestations of suboceanic disturbance that this is now termed the volcanic region of the Atlantic. Fearful indeed must be the forces that can transmit such violent action upward through three miles of water. This afternoon we noticed that the sea changed to a light green color, and the thermometer suddenly fell six degrees. These, I believe, are also usual phenomena on this mysterious tract of ocean. October 15th. We sailed today through an enormous fleet of Portuguese men-of-war, Nautilus, under full canvas. Pretty, these little creatures. I don't suppose I can call them fish, and creature is a safe term. Pretty they appeared, with their delicate pink fairy sails spreading to the favoring wind. This day we logged 160 miles. Position at midday, latitude 3 degrees 15 minutes south, longitude 24 degrees 39 minutes west. October 16th, day's run 175 miles, latitude 5 degrees 45 minutes south, longitude 25 degrees 55 minutes west. Spoke a full rig ship bound for the Cape of Good Hope. October 17th. We generally hold our own against the trading vessels we come across, and on many occasions have shown some bark or ship a clean pair of heels. But this day we were ignominiously beaten, but by so beautiful a vessel that we forgave her. She was a clean, bright Yankee bark, the Golden Cross. Her sails were as well cut as a yacht's and as snowy. By noon, we had added another 169 miles to our score. October 18th. The wind was now so much to the east of southeast that we were enabled to hoist our spinnaker with advantage. A very hot day. The wind was lighter, so our day's work was only 141 miles. October 19th. Wind still lighter. Day's work. 118 miles, past a jackass-rigged craft. October 20th, thermometer 90 degrees in the cabin, 125 degrees on deck. Wind light and variable, day's work, 89 miles. October 21st, a light breeze from the southeast. Barometer fell a tenth. We observed three interesting phenomena this day. The first was a huge water spout, which crossed our bows at about two miles' distance. The second phenomenon was America. The third, a bottle of Colaris wine. I was at the tiller. Arnaud was sadly contemplating a small whale which was floundering about near us. Arthur was, as was his wont, at the masthead, looking out for passing vessels, this in fishing for flying fish with a bull's-eye at night being his chief diversions on board. Suddenly the boy cried, Land right ahead, sir. I was incredulous, for I did not expect to sight the coast for some hours. On going aloft with the glasses, I saw that the boy was right. There was no mistake about it at all. There before us lay a long line of low sandy dunes fringed with coconut trees. I rather surprised Jourdain, who was sleeping below, when I touched him on the shoulder and remarked quietly, Here is America. It was a dreary coast, and so it is, all the way from Bahia to Pernambuco, low and monotonous, 
but strange and of the tropics to one coming from the northern lands for the first time a treble belt of striking color clove the vast blue spread of sea and sky first was a band of bright white the foam of perpetual breakers on the coast then a long strip of golden sand and above a broader green belt of waving cocoa palms dark against the pale blue sky the third phenomenon i spoke of was a bottle of Colaris wine. Having had a good look at the American coast, our storekeeper took a dive below and soon reappeared on deck with a smile at this same bottle. He was greeted with a shout of surprise. The existence of such a treasure on board had not been in the least suspected by the rest of us, but this wary member of the crew had secreted this last bottle of our Madeira cellar in order to produce it on a first sighting of the New World. It was formally uncorked, and with its assistance, we saluted the western continent. We had made the land about 100 miles to the northward of Bahia. October 22nd. A hot sun and a light breeze. We slowly followed the coast at a distance of about two miles from it. A line of sand fringed with coconuts and, visible from the masthead only, dense black masses of forest behind, unrolled themselves before us in monotonous panorama as we sailed by. We perceived no signs of human life on the shore, save here and there what appeared to be a negro hut. At last we sighted the lighthouse of San Antonio, and the scenery changed. Gently sloping hills came down to the shore, all covered with all manner of tropical forests and garden, among which nestled the villas and palaces of the wealthy merchants of Bahia. A wonderful sight, this brilliant tropical verdure, to us, fresh from the barren seas. A luxuriant growth pouring right down to the narrow merge of sand, where stretched the long line of graceful coconut palms, casting dark shadows on the clear water. We rounded the point of San Antonio with its picturesque fort, and sailed into the smooth waters of the beautiful Bay of Bahia. At 7 p.m., our chain once more rattled out through the hawsepipe, and we came to an anchor off the city. We were 21 days and 7 hours out from San Vicente, a much shorter voyage than we had anticipated. The distance by the route we had taken is 2,538 nautical miles. As soon as we had stowed our canvas, we brought out from hidden places white shirts, neckties, clothes, boots, and other articles of civilization, for our sea costume was barbaric in the extreme, and we awaited the authorities. Two boats soon came off. First, the Pratique boat. The doctor was satisfied with our hygiene and gave us permission to land, as far as his department was concerned. Then came off the steam lot to the captain of the port. The officer informed us that we were anchored in a prohibited spot and must move farther in. And now, for the first time, we experienced that universal courtesy which so pleased us in all the authorities we had dealing with in Brazilian and indeed in all other South American ports. As we were flying the Blue Ensign, man-of-war rights were granted to us. The captain of the port gave us permission to anchor in the man-of-war ground and to land with our boats at the naval landing stage at the arsenal. As the wind had now dropped, he very kindly towed us up to our anchorage with his launch and offered to give us every assistance in his power. The above privileges are of the greatest value in a Brazilian port 
where the custom regulations for merchant vessels are so strict. One cannot go off or on one's vessel, if she be a merchantman, after 8 p.m., without a special permit from the custom house. Now, we had the privilege of rowing to and fro at any hour. We could leave our boat alone and in safety at the arsenal steps. All we had to do when coming off late at night was to call the sentry of the arsenal gates to open them for us, telling him the name of our vessel. Again, an insolent negro guard is put on board every merchantman by the custom house. There he has to be fed, lodged, bribed, and made much of generally during the vessel's stay in the port. A horrible nuisance which we were also excused by virtue of our blue ensign. Ours was a nice snug anchorage in four fathoms under the antique fortress of Fort Lamar, a round gray mass built on a rocky islet. We were close to the beach and could see all the busy life of the Praia from our decks. Bahia is a picturesque place viewed from the sea. First along the shore is the Citada Baja, or lower town, the more ancient portion of the city. Here are the lofty stone houses of the old colonists with antique churches of massive and quaint architecture. For Bahia is one of the most antique cities of South America. It was founded in 1511 and is now the second city of Brazil. The lower city is built on a narrow strip of land along the water, at the foot of a steep, black cliff some 240 feet high. One great street stretches along the beach, known as the Praia. It is four miles long, with a tramway running down its length. This Praia presents a very animated appearance, for here are the huge stores, magazines, and warehouses, and along the quays are moored the native craft, the queerest imaginable, with their gaudy paint, lofty sterns, strange rig, and semi-nude negro crews. Here are to be seen the giant blacks with glistening ebon skin, rolling down the bales of cotton, coffee, and sugar, and other produce of this rich province. At first sight, this is evidently one of the busy marts of the world. Along the front of the Praia is a fruit, vegetable, and odds and ends market, where at their stalls sit the fattest and most voluble of negresses, with the gaudiest and most voluminous of turbans on their heads, and a rather liberal display of their large charms. This Praia is a hot place, and somewhat malodorous at times, for the fresh breezes are kept off by the steep cliff. Here the English sailor, too, rolls about red and sweating, drinking the vilest of new white rum and eating half-rotten fruit under the tropic sun, till of a sudden a sickness and a dizziness comes upon him, and in a terribly short time he falls, another victim of the invisible fiend Yellowjack. Behind this praia, as I said, rises a cliff, but not a smooth bare cliff, but rugged with quaint houses led into it and rich vegetation filling each crevice. The contrast between the two is most striking, for the houses are antique with gloomy arches, dingy many of them, as if they had stood through centuries of London smoke. Whereas the vegetation, who can describe its freshness, its marvelous exuberance, its youth, its fairy-like beauty? Graceful palms, luscious leaved bananas, wonderful creepers of rainbow colors overflow the cliff, forming a luxuriant curtain of tropical verdure, flower, fruit, depending from the upper to the lower city. On the summit of this cliff is a plain on which is built the Cittade Alta, or upper city, 
with its crowded, narrow streets, nearly each with its tramway line, its broad squares, and the cathedral. On either side of the town, on the hillsides overlooking the bay, are the most beautiful suburbs imaginable, with palatial villas nestling in gardens of such color and aroma as intoxicate the senses. No wonder if the Brazilian is voluptuous and lazy, living as he does in such a paradise as this. A steep road winds from the Praia to the upper city, but there is also another means of ascent prepared for an indolent population that will not walk ten yards if such exertion can be avoided. From the sea, an imposing-looking tower is observable, built from the lower town to the upper, along the cliffside, and terminating in a broad platform on the summit. This is the elevator, or parafusa as it is called here, being merely one of our now common hydraulic hotel lifts on a large scale. A smart Yankee hit upon this speculation, and it has proved successful. Any invention that can save a buy-in ten minutes' walk must pay well. The network of tramways in every Brazilian city is almost incredible. Even small villages inland, like St. Amaro, have their tram cars, and fine dividends the directors show, too. There is in Bahia another means of locomotion which I have never seen elsewhere. Nothing less than the good old-fashioned sedan chair of Queen Anne's day, carried by two stout Negroes. The model is exactly that of the queer box in which our great-grandmothers were wont to be carried to rout and ball. Such is Bahia, a city of about 230,000 inhabitants, of whom nearly three-quarters are mulattoes, native Negroes, and Africans, the remainder Brazilians, Portuguese, and foreigners. On the morning after our arrival, we prepared to go on shore to stretch our legs after our long confinement. So here we were at last, on the shore in South America, with plenty to see and wonder at. I am afraid the first thing we did was to enter the Freitas and Wilson store and indulge in the unwanted luxury of English beer. And now that I am on the subject, let me strongly recommend this firm of ship chandlers to any yachts that may come into Bahia. I shall not soon forget the courtesy and kindness they showed us. A ship chandler's store in a foreign port offers no small opportunity for the study of character, for it is the loafing place of the merchant captains. Here they sit, drink, and gossip through half the tropic day. Quite at home, sitting astride his chair, is the Yankee skipper of the smart schooner with broad Panama hat and long cigar. That bluff gentleman who sports a white helmet is the captain of the fine English bark that came in yesterday. The jovial German in the straw hat is the master of the ship Fraulein from Hamburg. Somewhat savoring of shop is their talk as a rule. Freights are discussed, the best longitude to cross the equator in, and the law is laid down with a thump of a horny hand on the counter. Then crews are disparagingly overhauled, somewhat in the manner of women talking over the much-vexed subject of domestic servants. We were introduced to an old American skipper with a snowy goatee who hailed from Virginia, a tough old sea dog of the Spanish Main and the Southern Seas. He had been a whaler in the great South Pacific, and was full of strange yarns of islands where one white lives alone, a king of savages. He was a walking pilot directory and gave us a long string of directions as to where we should go and what we should do. Said he, I guess you should go to the Solomons. They are fine. 
If you do, you don't land at such or such an island, for they air a queer people are. They'd treat you just as they would a fat bullock and walked on board your vessel. No, you visit the little bit of an island just south of that, so-and-so isle. Now, you mind me. Keep the big hut in the East Bay in one with a tall palm, and you'll see all by itself on a hill east by south, and steer bold in and bring up in four fathoms two cables off the shore. There you land. Tell the people you want the white man, say Jake. They'll know that you smelt him out, and they'll fetch him for you. For he is shy, is Jake. Rather queer. Can't to bear a white man, ain't accustomed to him. When you see him, you say you know me, and he'll show you round that thar island, I bet. You'll have high old times. Shouldn't wonder as you'll stay there altogether, you'll like it so much. I guess you'll take a half-dozen wives each and fix. And they're fine women, young men. For that their island is a paradise, what with the fruit and the flowers and the women. Whitey's too, whiter than I am, with long black hair. Why, Lord, see Jake sitting under his palm trees, smoking all day, while his wives do all the work there is to do? Do it willingly, too, singing all the time now, not like them darn sailors we was talking of just now. We start for an expedition to the upper town. We take our tickets for the elevator and enter a half-dark sort of wild beast cage where we sit down beside several of the gorgeous fat negresses for the production of which Bahia is celebrated and a few dark gentlemen smoking huge Bahia cigars. A strong and not delectable aroma pervades the cage which strikes me as being somehow familiar and seems in some strange way to call up reminiscences of my innocent childhood long ago. I have it. It is castor oil. The machinery of the elevator is evidently lubricated with this horror of my youth. The pretty tree from whose berries this useful drug is extracted grows in great profusion in Brazil, and this oil is here the cheapest of all lubricators, and is, therefore, extensively used for this purpose. At last, our smooth, well-castor-oil journey is completed, and the cage stops suddenly. We effect our exit and find ourselves on a platform on the summit of the cliff, an extensive square open on the seaside and surrounded by lofty hotels and houses on the other three sides. We pause a while by the railing on the edge of the precipice to admire the marvelous scene that stretches before us. The cliff, with its curtain of tropic verdure, falls perpendicularly from our feet. Below are the rooftops, the narrow streets of the lower town, the busy praia, the shipping. And then beyond, a great blue inland sea, with islands of waving palms and dense mangoes scattered over it. A sea indented with many a beautiful sandy bay, and with many a forest-clad promontory jutting out, noisy with the cry of parrots, and bright with many jewel-winged birds. On the further side stretch ranges of great purple mountains, scarce visible even in this clear air for the distance of them. And many a great river is seen pouring in from the inner lands, and many towns and picturesque whaling villages are scattered here and there around the wonderful coast, which is one ever-changing tropic garden. For this is the world-renowned Reconcava of Bahia, surely one of the wonders of the world. A bay seven miles broad at its mouth, then opening out into this landlocked sea of more than one hundred miles in circumference, where all the fleets of the world could find safe anchorage, free from any danger, 
and opening out with its many tributary rivers one of the richest regions of brazil that wonderful country of tropical prodigality with a gulf which seems as if formed by nature to be the emporium of the universe all these shores are famous for the production of tobacco for bahia is the great tobacco port of brazil just as rio janeiro is the coffee and pernambuco the sugar port interesting it is for a stranger from the old world to stroll for the first time through the Cidade alta of bahia the streets are narrow some of the houses are of antique architecture built of solid stone the gloomy mansions of the old merchant princes of the land the more modern are plastered gaudily painted pseudo-classic and byzantine gingerbread which however harmonize well with the brilliant air and vegetation most of the buildings here are five stories high thus utterly differing from the patioed one-storied flat-roofed houses in the cities of the spanish people to the south a busy life too throngs these narrow streets tramways rattle down the principal thoroughfares a mongrel crowd of black and white and yellow jostles and jabbers toward evening it is the custom for the women to come out on the balconies to enjoy the fresh breezes that then spring up up and down a long street at every balcony up to the fifth story they hang over mulatto and negro bells orange green white scarlet every gaudy color fanning flirting laughing chattering vigorously above the shrill scream of the tram whistles rises their shriller babel a bewildering pandemonium of extreme light and sound and color and motion mellowed slightly as a rule by an all-pervading mysterious heavy odor on the morrow arnaud and myself took tram to a certain ancient convent whose nuns are famous for their skill in the manufacture of feather flowers all manner of precautions are taken to keep the male sex from intruding on these gentle recluses we were not admitted within the precincts at all but had to stand outside a stoutly gated window and hold parley through it with the caged inmates indeed one grating was not deemed a sufficient barrier between them and the outer world the wall was about seven feet thick and there was a double grating in the recess one at each side so that a partition seven feet deep was between us an unnecessary precaution in biting sarcasm i should imagine to the poor nuns for in carnal attractions they were sadly hopelessly deficient they passed the flowers through the gratings to us in long-handled ladles very beautiful some of these flowers were of metallic lustered rainbow-hued feathers of hummingbird and parrot very keen at a bargain were the ladies they jabbered and wrangled and pushed each other aside in the excitement of their rivalry it was an unpleasing sight so we purchased a few flowers and departed end of chapter four